You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Probiotics are most effective when they make it to your colon alive. That's why Seed developed a patented two-in-one capsule that safeguards viability of its DSO-1 daily symbiotic through digestion to deliver the maximum dose to your colon. No refrigeration necessary. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to Patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl to learn more. And he baffles beholders by the puzzle of his sex that by a narrow margin hides its secret. This is not the first time you've said goodbye to him, but a part of you knows that it is the beginning of the last goodbyes. The last time you will see him laugh that carefree laugh. The last time he will be safe. The last time he will be yours and not the world's. He does not turn to wave. He has already forgotten you. You can see it in the determined way he walks, his head bowed demurely, his steps a little clumsy in his dress. He is already so far away. You want to call him back, to whisper a thousand warnings in his ears, to tell him you love him, that you'll always love him, that doing this thing for you will not sully his honor. It will not change him. He will always be yours, and you will always be proud of him. You watch from the gate. He fits in seamlessly with the other girls. He is tall, but not broad. His body's still lanky, unformed limbs. In his veil, with his long curls, he looks like one of them. He could be one of them, the daughter you never had. If he was a girl, there would be no war. No princes and kings demanding him. He's just a child, and they are desperately searching for him, scouring the Greek mainland, the islands, wherever they can think of, to take him from you, to replace his dress with armor, to take the lyre from his hands and give him a spear, a shield, a sword, an early death. They do not see how he moves, how he laughs, how he breathes. They did not carry him inside their bodies. They have not kissed his fevered brow or soothed him as he cried. They do not know what it is to love. Not really. All they know is how to burn, how to pillage, and how to destroy. You do not want him to grow up to be one of these men. You do not want to watch as everything kind and decent about this boy is burned away by war, brutality, and pain. You would rather he live here, forever, as a dancing girl, than spend one moment on the Trojan beach. One moment with those men. Those men who do horrible things in the name of their honor. His hips sway as he finds a place beside a tall, veiled girl. He is lithe and agile and already learning to walk and carry himself as one of them. You have given him everything a mother can give her child. And now the sea calls to you. It is not much, this consolation. But you can watch these waters. You can protect this island. You can keep him safe. As long as he stays within the walls of the palace, as long as he does not pick up a sword, you can keep him safe. You can give him life while the others promise only death. I'm Jen McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, we talked about one of the great love stories of Greek mythology, Achilles and Patroclus, a story of two men who fell in love, who went to war, and fought at each other's sides and who died for each other, 
It was all very swoon-worthy. And it was maybe the story that inspired the real-life sacred band of thieves? Who knows? Conjecture, conjecture, conjecture. Shameless fanfiction. Spurious conjecture. Outright (laughs) lies and fabrications. Why are you using us for your homework? (laughs) People know what they come here for. They know what they want, and we give it to them. But as romantic as this story was, and it was, it didn't exist in a silo. Achilles and Patroclus lived and loved and worked in a world populated by other people, by their men-at-arms, by kings and gods and monsters and women. While Achilles' love for Patroclus can never be called into question. Not not on this podcast, it can't. I don't know, Jen. I think they were just friends. (laughs) (laughs) The way Achilles treated the women who came into his orbit is unfortunately a little shocking. At the best of times, you can consider his treatment of women to be indifferent. I mean, that is the nicest possible way to frame it. But there were many times where he was a whole lot worse to the women unfortunate enough to cross his path. In the next few episodes, we decided to unpack Achilles' relationships with women in his life to see what light they can shed on the role of women in war and how martial men saw and treated women in the ancient world. Because Achilles probably wasn't that unusual. As both Jen and I have discussed before, the image and story of Achilles first made its way into our lives when we saw the 2004 movie Troy. In that movie, Achilles has a love interest, And it was 2004. That love interest was not Patroclus. Spoiler, it was Briseis. And as we've discussed before, Troy's Achilles is aggressively hetero. And his love interest in that movie was a woman who, with very few words and only basic human decency afforded to her, somehow falls in love with Achilles. I'd say that she was potentially dickmatized, but that might be giving his dick way too much credit. She falls in love with him because he lovingly dabs at her wounds. (laughs) Wounds that he probably gave her while sacking her temple. Sack my temple anytime you want, Brad Pitt, circa 2004. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, again, because I did the primary research on this episode, I'm like, I know what you're thinking. And I'm not disagreeing. The fantasy is great, but I know the reality because I'm the primary researcher. (laughs) And no, no, I've ruined Achilles for myself maybe forever. We're bringing all this up because this is how Achilles is so often portrayed as the lead in a beautiful and epic romance. And sometimes it's a straight romance. Sometimes it is a queer romance. But he was also a man who conquers and takes women to be his property. And in the straight wash version, those two things are often conflated. He's a proud man whose honor means as much, if not more, to him than his life, and certainly the lives of most people around him. And the things and people who belong to him, quote-unquote, matter only because they're an extension of him and his honor. It's a pretty toxic way to be. And it's this toxicity that we're going to dig into today, because you can't have a series on gender and gender rebels in ancient Greece and Rome and not discuss this side of Achilles. You can't bring him up and not talk about this. As much as I really wanted to let this go, I couldn't. Achilles didn't exist in a silo, and the way he treated women has to be looked at in order to fully understand this gender rebel, this complicated and rage-filled man, this man who died for the love of Patroclus. So, let's start at the very beginning. Let's dive into Achilles' relationship with his mother, the immortal Nereid, Thetis. As we discussed in our last episode, Thetis' marriage to Peleus wasn't exactly a happy one. Peleus really didn't give a fuck about consent. And Thetis didn't want to have kids with a mortal man who didn't care about consent. She didn't really want to have kids with a mortal man, full stop. She knew the oracle's prophecy that her child would be greater than his father, and she'd kind of been counting on having an immortal kid. So when the gods, mostly fuck daddy Zeus, decided that pious Peleus was the perfect match for Thetis, she wasn't given much of a choice. Even if she did manage to transform herself into different sea creatures to try to escape, Peleus, the mortal man, was an expert wrestler. He was good at one thing, I guess, and that was wrestling. But he wasn't that good a wrestler. (laughs) Peleus had a lot of experience wrestling women, by the way, and um, getting his ass kicked. He famously attempted to wrestle Atalanta and had his ass handed to him. So after Peleus wrestled Thetis into submission... Peleus and Thetis were married. All the gods came to wish the couple well, and, you know, down the line, eventually, the timeline is fuzzy, baby Achilles was born. There's a lot you can say about Thetis. She was petty, 
As all the gods were, she was distant, she could be cruel, but she loved her son. She loved her son so much that if she were real and living today, she'd probably be unsmothered, giving a talking headpiece to the camera about how difficult it is to be an immortal goddess with a mortal son who just doesn't understand all the things she does for him. Cue Achilles eye-rolling in the distance, going, God, Mom, stop. As we mentioned in our last episode, when Achilles was a baby, Thetis was terrified of losing her mortal son, and she wanted to burn the mortality out of him. But really what I think here is she wanted to burn his father out of him because she hated him that much. She wanted Achilles to be all the things that were her, the immortality, strong, immortal, and none of the things that were his father, weak, male. That sounds about right. (laughs) So every night she put her son into the fire, holding on to him by his ankles, and every day she pulled him out of the fire and anointed him with ambrosia. As we said, there's also another later myth about her dipping him in the river Styx. Again, Thetis was literally trying to burn all the things that made him mortal and turned him into a god. She wanted an immortal son, and her plan would have worked were it not for Peleus. One evening, Peleus came across his wife holding their son in the fire and lost his shit. Thetis was so horrified by his reaction that she ran off into the sea, leaving Peleus and her son alone. As you can imagine, this was not an ideal start to motherhood. Thetis actually did love her son in her own way, but she was a sea nereid. Her heart and her being belonged in the sea and to the sea. She was as changeable as, you guessed it, the sea. So, when she realized she wasn't going to be able to burn the human out of her son, She needed some time to regroup and grieve, and she headed to the sea to gather her thoughts. Where else would she go? We don't know a lot about the relationship between Thetis and Achilles while he was a child. Presumably, they had some sort of communication because the mythology tells us that Thetis cared for her son and loved him and would do anything to protect him. But it doesn't show us any of these examples. It's a lot of tell, don't show. It kind of goes dark on Thetis and Achilles for a long time. The next time we see Thetis interacting with her son, it's when he's a young man, probably in his early to mid-teens. Thetis was up on all the Olympian gossip. She knew all the right parties to go to and heard all the news coming out of the oracles. And one of the oracles made a prophecy about her son. The oracles were always talking about her son. And it was always bad news. Oh yeah, if the oracle has something to say about you, you might as well throw yourself off a cliff. Because like, It's not going to be good. That's the impression I get. The Oracle never says anything good about you. It's always like, yeah, you're going to kill your mom and marry your dad. What? I'm just (laughs) going to hurl myself into the sea now and skip all of that. It's said that he was destined to die at Troy. Thetis decided that she was going to conscientiously object to this and just nope her son out of that. Yeah, because the flip side of that was he would go to Troy, be the greatest of the Greeks and die real young, or... He could just sit this out and die an old man in his bed, forgotten. And she was like, do you know what? Forgotten sounds better than dead young. And she definitely wasn't going to give Achilles a choice because she knew what he would choose. So she called in a lot of favors from the other gods and goddesses. And a lot of these favors involved finding Achilles. He was hanging out with Chiron and learning how to become a well-rounded man and warrior. And the favors also involved helping her to kidnap and then hide Achilles. So the source we're using here to talk about this phase of Achilles' life is a very late one. It's actually our guy, Stasius, or Mustachius. Mustachius, I know him. He's that guy we told you about in our Unix episodes who wrote all those love poems about Orinus. You know, Domitian's child sex slave, because bringing it right back. Bringing it right (laughs) back to the episode where everybody's testicles got crushed. (sighs) We didn't have to say that, but of course you did. Whose podcast is this? It's ours. So Mustachius was a Roman poet who lived in the first century AD. And he discussed this part of Achilles' life in a poem called The Achilleid. And it was definitely drawing on earlier works, but we don't know exactly what those works were. We do know that this story, the story that we see in The Achilleid, existed at least during classical times. We don't know if it goes as far back as the archaic times, which is when Homer was writing. Classical times was when like the great tragedians like Sophocles and Euripides were writing their plays. Classical Greece was around the 500s to the 300s BC. Archaic Greece, I believe, started around the 800s BC. We have talked a lot about the continuity of that, such as we know it, in the last episode. 
So this story that we're going to tell you about Achilles's time in the court of the king of Skyros as a dancing girl goes at least as far back as classical Greece, but I believe the most complete source on it is this very late Roman source, Mustatius, who's telling the story, I don't know, 700 years or so after the classical Greeks, approximately, I'm guessing, maybe 600 years, five or 600 years, I'm guessing. Yeah, we're not mathematicians. It's fine. They know this by now. We can't do basic addition. <laughs> <laughs> or subtraction. So there was a reason I wanted to include this. It's because the Achilleid gives us a really poignant look at the relationship between Thetis and Achilles and the pivotal moments before Achilles takes his place amongst the warriors bound for Troy. It also gives us a lot of interesting gender bending. Yeah, it gives us some real insight into Achilles' relationship with his own gender. And the stress and strain that his mother's love put on him, on his gender, on his identity. There is probably a toxic Roman lens here that is also at play. And possibly a toxic Greek lens that was there before that. And Jen and I had this conversation about whether or not what we're going to see in this story was an invention from the time of the classical Greeks or even, you know, Roman times, but possibly the classical Greeks, where they're putting a spin on his gender fluidity that wasn't there in archaic Greece. I kind of question that now because a lot of what you see in his later mythology kind of ties back to this in a way that makes sense for the story being what it is. Yeah, I think when we get to our next episode, this is a two-parter, everyone. When we get to our second part, which looks at Achilles at war, when you've heard this episode, it sheds a lot of light on why he feels so aggressive about his honor. Because there is stuff that's going to happen here that I think psychologically gives Achilles a lot of chips on his shoulder. And I think knowing that, knowing these stories, some of his behavior, while very toxic, makes a little more sense. Yeah, so let's get into it. Thetis does not want her son to die at war, but she knows the Greeks can't win without him, so lots of people are going to be trying to find him and get him to go fight at Troy. The Trojan War has started. She knows that everyone is going to go looking for him and try to get him to join, and she does not want this to happen. It hasn't started yet, like the recruitment phase has started, right? And she has a feeling that Achilles will absolutely leap at the chance because he's eager for fame and glory, and he's like, what, 14 at this point? So she goes to Poseidon, sobbing, and begs him to drown Helen of Troy's ship, to whip up the sea and sink the ship. In fact, sink all the ships, sink any ships that could possibly take her son to Troy. But Poseidon is like, nope, not gonna do that. Nope, no can doosville, baby doll. It's been decreed by Zeus. This war is on. Zeus needs something to binge watch. There's nothing Poseidon can do. His hands are tied. Zeus has already watched season two of Bridgerton, and he said it wasn't as steamy as season one, and he's disappointed. And this is going to go for 10 years. It's going to be a long-running series, <laughs> and we're not begging out now. <laughs> and Thetis is pissed. She tries to raise the waves she needs herself, but it's a no-go. She's one of the most powerful Nereids, but Poseidon is literally blocking her from using her powers here, from calling on the waves and seas to fuck up the Trojan and Greek fleets. He's like, nope. Thetis is furious, and she decides that the only sane course of action is to kidnap her son and hide him. The one place the Greeks probably won't look for him, the island of Skyros. And that's what she does. She goes to the home of Chiron, where Achilles is training, and she kidnaps Achilles at night when he's sleeping. She brings him over the waves to Skyros. She tells him that she is desperate not to lose him. She cannot bear the thought of him dying on the killing fields of Troy. She knows he has been training his whole life to be a warrior, to be the best warrior. But can't he just do this one thing for her? Just wait. Just wait a little longer. Just hide out here at the court of Lycomedes as one of the dancing women. He could definitely disguise himself as a dancing woman. He's so lovely, so pretty. You're so pretty, Achilles. But you know what? Let's not focus on that. Just look at this place. It's amazing. It's a great place to be. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Thetis gives Achilles the most epic guilt trip. Quote, Quickly, she caresses him and soothes his fear. Quote within the quote, If, dear lad, a kindly lot had brought me the wedlock that it offered, in the fields of heaven should I be holding thee, a glorious star in my embrace, nor a celestial mother should I fear the lowly fates or the destinies of the earth. But now unequal is thy birth, my son, and only on thy mother's side is the way of death barred for thee. Moreover, times of terror draw nigh, and peril hovers about the utmost goal. Retire we then, relax a while thy mighty spirit, and scorn not this raiment of mine. So she's asking her son to disguise himself as a girl in the palace of Lycomedes, and she's offering him her own clothes, I think. This way, I entreat thee, suffer me to escape the threatening, baleful cloud. Soon will I restore thy plains and the fields where the centaurs roam. By this beauty of thine and the coming joys of youth, I pray thee, if for my sake I endured the earth, and an inglorious mate, if at thy birth I fortified thee with the stern waters of sticks, I would I had wholly take these safe robes a while, they will in no wise harm thy valor. Why dost thou turn away? What means that glance? Art thou ashamed to soften thee in this garb? Dear lad, I swear it by my kindred waters, Chiron shall know not of this. Okay, so let's let's pause. Let's talk about this. So she's trying to get Achilles to disguise himself as a girl, and she tells him that he has to do this for her. It's for her. Do it for your mom. She can't bear to lose him. It's not her fault that he's mortal. If she had her way, he wouldn't be mortal. He'd be immortal. But no, the fates had not been kind. She had to marry that inglorious husband. And you know how it is with fate and mortal fathers. Dark times are approaching, <clears throat> the Trojan War is ramping up, and the only way she can keep him safe is to ask that he just do this very small thing. Just pretend to be a girl for a couple years. No one's ever going to know about this. I'm not going to tell them. You're not going to tell them. It's okay. You don't need to feel ashamed. You're doing this for me. Do it for your mom. Come on. Your mom is an immortal goddess. She has brought you to an island. How are you going to get off this island? She's in charge of the seas. There's definitely an unequal balance of power here. And Achilles is genuinely torn for a bit. He doesn't want to let Chiron down, his mentor. He also doesn't want to dress as a girl because his honor is at stake. Honor is at stake. Men don't run away from war. And they don't hide out on a remote island dressed as a girl. Not honorable men. You can really see the beginnings of Achilles' confusion, not just with his gender identity, but with his toxic obsession with his honor. It kind of all stems from this moment, and he can't help but waver. He knows what Thetis is asking feels wrong to him, because he knows if there's a war, his honor 
tells him he's been trained. It's his job to fight. That's what all of this has been about. And then at this particular moment, Lycomedes' dancing maidens or ladies-in-waiting, including their princess, Didymea, just so happened to walk past. Hello, ladies. And remember, Achilles has been off training with men and boys. He probably has not seen a girl up close since he hit puberty. Except his mom, which, like, I don't think, I think she's more terrifying. So Mustachius gives us some insight into what might have changed Achilles' mind in the Achilles. quote, What god imbued the despairing mother with fraud and cunning? What device drew Achilles from his stubborn purpose? When he beheld her, Lycomedes' daughter, Didymea, the lad, ungentle as he was and heart-whole from any touch of passion, stood spellbound and drank in strange fire through all his frame. Seizing the moment, his mother purposely accosts him. Is it too hard a thing, my son, to make pretense of dancing and join hands in sport amongst these maidens? Oh, if it were my lot to match two loving hearts and to bear another Achilles in my arms. So now she's guilting him about grandbabies. Yeah, he's 14. He's 14 years old. And he's seen a pretty girl for the first time. So let's pause. As soon as Achilles sees Didymea, he's like, well, hello there. She's worth hanging out on this island for. She's worth dressing up as a lady for. She's worth missing the entire Trojan War. Oh my God, it's a girl. I am here for this. And Thetis is like, yeah, I'm going to take advantage of this shamelessly. Achilles, hang out here, dress up as a dancing girl, Learn how to do all the things dancing girls do. And if when I, I don't know, you happen to find yourself knocking up the daughter of Lycomedes at the age of 14, I would be absolutely down with that. I'm so ready for all those grandbabies. <laughs> so. I want them to call me Grandma Cece. <laughs> I'm already picking out my grandma name. Exactly. I don't want to be a nana. So teenage lust, hormones, and fetus are all in agreement. I thought you said and fetus are all in agreement. I was like, not yet. Fetus are all in agreement. And Achilles in this moment is like, yeah, okay, I will do this. I will do this. It will make this heroic sacrifice for you, mom. And also for my dick, which is clearly calling the shots here. And he does in this moment completely forget about his forever love, Patroclus, because he's 14 and he has the long-term memory of a gnat, I suppose. I suppose. I mean... Patroclus? What Pat? Who is Patroclus? I do think, like, there is this feeling that Achilles has where I am now on this island. I don't know if I will ever get off this island or if anyone will ever remember me. I don't know how long I'm going to be on this island. Is it an enchanted island? I don't know. And then Mustachius gives us a bit more information about how Thetis manages to make Achilles look like the perfect dancing girl. The kind of girl who would easily fit into the troupe that accompanies Princess Didymea. Quote, he is softened and blushes for joy and with sly and sidelong glance repels the robes less certainly. His mother sees him in doubt and willing to be compelled and casts the raiment over him. Then she softens his stalwart neck and bows his strong shoulders and relaxes the muscles of his arms and tames and orders duly his uncombed tresses and sets her own necklace about the neck she loves. Then keeping his step within the embroidered skirt, she teaches him gait and motion and modesty of speech. Even as the waxen images that the artist's thumb will make to live take from and follow the fire and the hand that carves them, such was the picture of the goddess as she transformed her son. Nor did she struggle long, for plenteous charm remains to him, though his manhood book it not, and he baffles beholders by the puzzle of his sex that by a narrow margin hides its secret." They go forward, and Thetis unsparingly plies her counsels and persuasive words. Quote within the quote, Thus, then, my son, must thou manage thy gait, thus thy features and thy hands, and imitate thy comrades and counterfeit their ways, lest the king, like Amedes, suspect thee and admit thee not to the women's chambers, and the crafty cunning of our enterprise be lost. Let's break this down. Achilles has been quote-unquote transformed by his mom into a feminine version of himself. His features, his countenance, they all look more feminine. Achilles can now take his place as one of the dancing girls. And only Thetis and maybe King Lycomedes, sometimes he knows, sometimes he doesn't know, 
will ever know the truth that Achilles is a fox in the hen house. That passage sounds like he doesn't know, but maybe he does. I've read it in other places that he does know. I've read it in places that he doesn't know. Who knows? It's real fuzzy. A wizard did it. (laughs) A wizard did it. We talked in our last episode about how Achilles was a gender rebel. There's a strong case to be made that he was feminine presenting. But in this episode, when you take a closer look at how things went down with Thetis, you get the impression that this wasn't entirely consensual. At least not at first. It was something his mom imposed on him to save his life. And the episode about him passing as a girl, the one that we're quoting here, comes to us from a much later source. It's not in the original Iliad, and when it does exist, it comes from the classical Greeks. And both the classical Greeks and this later Roman source might have had their own access to grind, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of layers here, and it is kind of hard to unparse. I know that in the last episode, I got really excited about the idea of a, you know, a genderqueer, maybe feminine presenting Achilles, because that's not how you usually see him presented, you know? So it's it's really exciting to conceive of him in a brand new way. I mean, that's just exciting to me, like, to find things in the ancient sources that make me completely rethink something that I thought I knew well. So, you know, I got excited about that, and I was really thrilled about it. And then, of course, As with so many things in the ancient world, when you delve into them a little bit deeper, a lot of the time, there's a dark side to that. It's not just that he's this really great genderqueer character that we can all idolize and romanticize. I mean, we can do that and people do. But there's also this sort of non-consensual aspect to it. There's stuff here that is problematic. Yeah, and, and some of that comes from who is telling us the story of this event and how that works, right? And that's exactly what I was trying to get to with where has this been found in the earliest sources? Who's telling us this story? Sure, but we don't know how it would have been told in an archaic time. We don't know the oral traditions about it. We don't know really anything except what's been written down. And the best source here is the Achilleid. And again, how Achilles feels is very much given to us from another lens. And I think one of the interesting things when I was doing the research is we see a lot of immortals gender bend, right? Like Dionysus does, Zeus does, Aphrodite does. So there's a part of me that's like, with all this burning of Achilles's mortality out of him, is this something about him that they don't understand? Something that is immortal in his ability to be both the greatest warrior and also a dancing maiden? I think there's a little bit of that that they're trying to explain here in his story, in his history, and it becomes quite toxic for reasons we'll get to later. I do think there's an ethereal beauty to him that is very difficult for, you know, the Greeks who are looking for their manliest man of man to not be such an ethereal beauty. And for the Romans, too. I mean, they had that same feeling that they wanted their manly men to be impenetrable penetrators, and Achilles doesn't fit that mold. I mean, Achilles at this point in his life would fit a very Ganymede role. He's very young. He's very beautiful. He's very blonde, according to the mythology. And it's difficult to think of your macho hero guy, your guy who's going to single-handedly beat up on all the Trojans and be the greatest of your warriors, looking like Ganymede as a teen. Although many men do. You can absolutely be a tough warrior and feminine presenting or, you know, a woman. Ask Atalanta! Of course, but this was this is all part of the gender that, that the ancient Greeks, in particular, this goes back to the classical Greeks and then the Romans after them, were trying to mindfully construct. They were building this edifice of gender around what it means to be a man. And Achilles came from this older paradigm and didn't quite fit into that, so I would believe that they would create this storytelling around him where it's not his fault. His mom made him do it. Absolutely. And I I do want to say once again, Achilles, when he goes to war, is essentially a child soldier. You know, the ages are very fuzzy, but for some of it, possibly, yeah. Yeah, quite young, I would imagine. I mean, at the oldest, what could he have been, 16 or 17? That's still a kid. I mean, yes, I guess you could technically join the army with permission at that age, but it's still a kid. Depending on what army and when. I mean, the sacred band wasn't going to let you in until you were 20, theoretically. Theoretically, and there were good reasons for that. So anyway, Thetis rips Achilles out of his world, away from his teacher and mentor, Chiron, away from his best friend and lover, Patroclus, and drops him off in the middle of an island filled with beautiful girls and teaches him how to pass as one himself. When Achilles sees Didymea, he gives his mother consent to let her change him. And this is important because where we see a lot of transformations of other characters in mythology and in history... 
there's usually a prayer to change a gender or an entreaty to a god or goddess. This is a deity-facilitated change. This is how the ancients saw this. But in this moment, a goddess is asking a mortal for his consent to transform him into a girl. That sense of God-facilitated gender transformation is preserved in this story. It's really fascinating. Is the transformation magical or is it just about like what clothes he wears and how he moves and stuff? Well, I would say the language is really ambiguous because it says how she takes his strong shoulders and bows them. Is she physically, like, is she magically bowing them so they look more feminine? Or is she just touching them and showing him how to hold himself? We don't know. I guess maybe like 15 years ago, I might have been able to translate this, but I can't now. So I don't know. We know that she gives him her raiment, her garments. Is there anything magical imbued in there? I don't know, because the translation we used is excellent, but it's older. And I don't think that the translator had these thoughts in mind when they were looking at the language used. Our thoughts are, is there a magical element to this? What are we seeing here? We just don't know. Right. So it is a little bit ambiguous, but you could interpret it that way. So Achilles lets his mom transform him, change his appearance, and give him a new name. Pyrrha, the red-haired. Thetis is hoping through this transformation that Achilles will be able to live a long life. And there's even this beautiful moment in the Achilleid when Achilles has been transformed and gone off to join the other dancing women to be a princess of Skyros. When Thetis is waiting by the gate, watching her son, maybe transformed into a daughter, walk away from her. And here's the quote. Quote, Long ere she, Thetis, departs, lingers the mother at the gate, while she repeats advice and implants whispered secrets in his ear, and in hushed tones gives her last counsels. Then she plunges into the main and gazing back swims far away and entreats with flattering prayers the island shore. O land that I love, to whom by timid cunning I have committed the pledge of my anxious care, a trust that is great indeed. Mayest thou prosper and be silent, I beg, as Crete was silent for Rhea, enduring honor and everlasting shrines shall gird thee, nor shalt thou be surpassed by unstable Delos. Sacred alike to wind and wave shalt thou be, and calm abode of the Nereids, among the shallows of the Cyclades, where the rocks are shattered by Aegean storms, an isle that sailors swear by. Only admit no Greek keels, I beg. Hear only the wands of Dionysus, naught avails for war. Let Achilles be the maiden daughter of good Lycomedes. So we're going to leave Thetis for a little bit with her prayers and her maybe her powers of transformation, we're going to let her head back into the sea. Instead, we're going to stay with Achilles on the island of Skyros and look at what happened when he met Didymea and the other dancing girls. Didymea is a very interesting character in Achilles' story. She's a princess of Skyros, and maybe the only woman Achilles really loved, although, eh, that's real debatable, I don't know. She doesn't exist so much as a fully rounded character, but rather as a representation of all that Achilles could have if he remains on Skyros. So, Didymea befriends Achilles. She teaches him how to spin wool, she teaches him how to dance, weave, do, I don't know, ancient world lady things. They become fast friends, with Didymea really believing that Achilles is a girl. Is there chemistry? Does this become a will-they-won't-they-bone situation? You can read that between the lines, but it's a forbidden chemistry. Much like Iphis and Ianthe, the love Didymea might feel for Achilles, or Pyra as she knows him, is forbidden and filled with shame. And I absolutely do get Iphis and Ianthe vibes here, and I think it's super interesting that Achilles has his first love for a woman as a girl himself like that's also quite queer it's very queer and it says a lot about his sexuality because we know like his first relationship was with patroclus and they're both boys and his next relationship is for a girl when he is disguised as a girl and doing things coded feminine and learning how to be a proper princess yeah and i could see didymea experiencing feelings for him for pyrrha as if it's felt for Ianthe, and being all confused about it and being like, well, wait, there's, there's never in the history of time a female cow loving another cow, like with Ianthe, you know, and just being completely confused by this. Because that's how women loving women in the ancient world 
probably felt a lot of the time because this was so erased, as we talked about in our Queer Women episode. Yeah, and I really wanted to make sure that we had time to stop and look at this a little bit because it's so complicated and it's so fascinating because Achilles's gender here is just so fluid and so full of nuance in ways that we don't always see in other stories about Greek heroes. So Achilles, for his part, is also filled with shame and longing. He breaks away from the train of dancing maidens to lament the life he's given up by living in Skyros. I should say, I didn't include a very long quote where he's very happy with the life he's living and enjoying playing with the girls. So he kind of goes back and forth, right? Like He does. He's very, very torn. There are moments where he's really enjoying himself. He's like playing with the wands of Dionysus and having a good time with the dancing ladies and learning how to dance and play and be a princess, be a woman. But he also has moments where he, he is filled with shame and he, he is worried about what he's given up to be here. And that's the quote I'm going to read you. Quote, How long wilt thou endure the precepts of thy anxious mother and waste the first flower of thy manhood in this soft imprisonment? No weapons of war mayest thou brandish, no beasts mayest thou pursue. Lookest thou in vain, Spurtius, for my swimming and for my promised tresses? Or hast thou no regard for the foster child that has deserted thee? Am I already spoken of as born to the Stygian shades afar? And does Chiron in solitude bewail my death? Thou, O Patroclus, now does aim my darts, does bend my bow and mount the team that was nourished for me. But I have learnt to fling wide my arms as I grasp the vine wands, and to spin the distaff thread. Ah, shame and vexation to confess it. Nay more, night and day, thou dost dissemble the love that holds thee, and thy passion for the maid of equal years. How long wilt thou conceal the wound that galls thy heart, nor even in love, for shame, prove thy own manhood? So my thoughts are that if the passage right before this is Achilles talking about how what he enjoys about his time on Skyros, right? It's almost like he, he enjoys it, but he feels this real outside pressure to get away from it. And he also feels shame at enjoying it. He's not supposed to want this. He's supposed to do something else. Which isn't the same thing as not feeling like he identifies as a woman at all, you know? Like, he's got to be so confused about his gender presentation, and he definitely has a lot of shame here. He does, and I think that it's really difficult because, again, I, I've done the main research on these episodes, and I go back and forth between hating and loving Achilles. A lot of his life is so complicated. He does some awful things, but also he's real confused because not just his gender presentation, which is a huge issue, where he fits in the realm of men is also at question, right? Like, he's greater than his father, but he's not immortal. He's not Heracles. He's not Theseus, thank goodness. But he's not mortal either. He's something else. And I feel like that's the struggle of Achilles throughout his whole life. He's not one thing or the other. And I, I think we see that in his gender as well. He's not one thing or the other. You know, much like Tiresias, he lives as both a man and as a woman for a time. Yeah, he doesn't quite fit in in either camp. And he's driven to distraction by the fact that he's living this, what he might consider this big lie. He's attracted to Didymea, but he can't act on that attraction because she thinks he's a girl. Again, like these are real Iphis and Ianthe vibes I'm getting here. He misses Patroclus and he knows that he's not out in the world doing manly work, hunting and fighting. Instead, he's here on Skyros spinning and, God, heaven forbid, grasping the vine wands of our Lord and Savior Dionysus, which was very feminine coded. Remember, at this time, only women could join the cult of Dionysus. In particular, at this point in time, remember, this is also coming from a Roman lens. Only women were in, in the cult of Dionysus or Bacchus at this point in time. So Achilles is literally at his wit's end here, not sure what's happening to him. He's got a lot of confusion around his gender, around his place in the world. And it's not that he is altogether unhappy with this life. He knows that he wants Didymea. He likes his life, but he feels this pressure to prove his manhood. He feels like he's been, you know, destined for this one thing his whole life, and now he's been pulled away from it, and he's got something to prove now. 
probably because his gender transformation at the hands of his mom was not entirely consensual or driven by his own sense of his gender identity, or maybe it was, it's really hard to tell. Either way, the toxic masculinity buzzer is definitely going off here. It is, yeah, because he's just swirling in this this confusion. And part of what we're going to see next is is what happens to him when he doesn't know how to react. So what happens? So Achilles struggles with his desire for Didymea. They spend their time playing and being friends and fighting an intense attraction, which Didymea isn't sure what to make of. They teach each other different songs on the lyre because Achilles is an expert lyre player. And these songs include a lot of numbers about a guy named Achilles. You know what I think? I think that he just sang other songs about other heroes and inserted his own name in there. I mean, wouldn't you if you were like a 14, 15 year old guy like, she's never heard this song about Jason. Let's go. (laughs) Theseus, Achilles did it. (laughs) So time passes and soon it's time for the Bacchic rites that take place on the island. Now, let's be honest. We are all curious about these rites. Does someone get torn apart? What are all those women doing in the woods? Is it an orgy? Fingers crossed. Please, someone tell us. So Didymea brings Achilles, who she still believes is Pyrrha, a girl, along to these rites. And it does not go well. Achilles gets really into the Bacchic rites. Like, really into them. And decides that this is the time to tell Didymea that Pyrrha is really Achilles. Surprise! You know all those songs about Achilles? I'm him! (laughs) Have you heard the good news about me? And then, while Didymea is... Still in shock. Here's your trigger warning. He rapes her. Well, this has just taken a very dark turn. Yeah, I mean, we said he got toxic. So the scene goes down like this, quote, and we are going to mention that the rape happens, but it it is not graphic and does not describe it at all. Anyway, quote, Achilles once more brandishes the thyrsus, yet first with friendly speech he solaces the anxious maid. I am he, why fearest thou, whom thy cerulean mother bore well nigh to Jove, and sent to find my nurture in the woods and snows of Thessaly. Nor had I endured this dress and shameful garb had I not seen thee on the seashore. T'was for thee I did submit, for thee I carry skines and bear the womanly timbrel. I mean, can we just stop there for a moment? He's literally like, it's totally all for you that I've decided to dress up this way and to be around you and to disguise myself because you. I saw you and was like, I need to be close to you. Do you know what this reminds me of? I don't know how many of you watched the Netflix show You. This is exactly what the narrator would say to the girls before he toxically did something awful to them. Would like lock them in his, I don't know, basement murder cube? <laughs> yeah, he's got a plastic murder cube. But doesn't it, isn't this exactly something that he would say? Joe, Joe's his name. That does seem to be how it went down, kind of. But yeah, I agree. It's like, oh, I did, the, I did all this for you, baby. Like, how long has it been? Two years? In the next section, he's, he's talking about how their marriage is clearly automatic now. Why dost thou weep who art made daughter-in-law of mighty ocean? This is already locked down. Why dost thou moan who shalt bear valiant grandsons to Olympus? But thy father, Skyros, shall be destroyed by fire and sword, and these walls shall be in ruins, and the sport of wanton winds. I don't know why that would upset you. I don't know why telling you that everyone you love is going to die would make you cry. Ere thou pay by cruel death for my embraces, not so utterly am I subject to my mother. So he is kind of also blaming his mom. Anyway, horror struck was the princess at such dark happenings albeit long since she had suspected his good faith, and shuddered at his presence. Gosh, I wonder why. And his countenance was changed as he made confession. What is she to do? Shall she bear the tale of her misfortune to her father, and ruin both herself and her lover, who perchance would suffer untimely death? And still there abode within her breast the love so long deceived. Her nurse alone she resolves to make a partner in deceit, and she, yielding to the prayers of both, assents. With secret cunning, she conceals the rape and the swelling womb and the burden of the months of ailing, till Lucina, I think that's the nursemaid, brought round by token the appointed season, her course now fully run, and gave deliverance of her child. So she still loves him, despite everything, which is really fucked up. She still loves him, despite everything, which does make me go back earlier and think, 
did she have a crush on him when he was a girl and was she dealing with those feelings? Like, that's where I've taken that reading from. I agree with you. And I'm, it's almost like a very much darker Iphis and Ianthe story. Yeah. Silent is she in her grief and dissembles the crime that both now share alike. Her nurse alone, she resolves to make a partner in deceit. And she, yielding to the prayers of both, assents. I mean, and this is so rape culture right? Like, the woman is now, I guess you could say, complicit in the cover-up of her own rape because she can't trust anybody to believe her story, to not look at her like she's been quote-unquote ruined, like it's not all her fault. It's really dark, and I wanted to include it because it it really shows this other side to Achilles that that is in the mythology, you know, this this happened. I think one of the things about it is she spent so much time with him thinking he was a safe person, that he was he was a woman and she was confiding things in and maybe she had an attraction to him and now it's gone in one moment. She knows that he is no longer Pyrrha, he is Achilles and he has raped her and she still loves him for some reason and she wants to be with him she wants to have this child with him and maybe it is this idea of like okay well now I'm gonna have a baby that's half immortal or a third immortal and that matters I don't know I don't know really a hundred percent know what's going on here I think that she's also really confused by her feelings like it makes sense that she had a crush on Pyrrha and thought Pyrrha was a safe person this person has now done this thing to her and she's trying to process it. And she's like, well, I still have these feelings. They haven't just gone anywhere. If I tell anybody, they're going to blame me for it. So I can't tell anyone. And now I'm just really confused. Like, what the fuck? She's a kid, too. Like, they're both like, what, 14 to 16 at this point? It tracks to me that she would have these really confused feelings that would keep her in this place. You know, I think that Achilles is is doing this because he felt like in this moment that he had to assert his masculinity. Like this is what he has to do to prove that he is a man. I don't know. It's, it's really confusing. It's possible that it is just that toxic. It's possible that he's been reading this feeling between the two of them as, well, we both really want each other and love each other. And therefore I'm a guy. Surprise. We can be married and you can be happy and you can be like a great granddaughter to Olympus. Like, isn't that awesome? Let's bone. And Rather than listen to his future potential wife being like, I need a minute to process this, he just goes ahead. And also, you know, bearing in mind that Achilles has not had any good role models at all about consent. Like, I mean, his mom does not know about consent. His dad certainly does not know about consent. He's been surrounded by toxicity in that area since he was a baby. And he's going to continue to be surrounded by that at war. I don't think he ever will learn what consent is because there is no role model who's given him what consent means. So this happens. It's really fucking dark. Achilles rapes Didymea and she gets pregnant and she agrees to keep the pregnancy a secret. And the two continue to live together and maybe kind of as man and wife. That's what the epic poets want us to believe, that this relationship eventually turned consensual regardless of how it started. But after a while, the Trojan War that has been building outside the island of Skyros eventually comes to the island. Two warriors arrive, Odysseus and Diomedes. They have been sent to Skyros because of a prophecy that essentially says Achilles is living here, he's hiding out here. The prophecies just will not shut up about Achilles. They will not. They're all about Achilles. And according to this prophecy, Achilles must come to Troy or the Greeks cannot possibly win. And can we just stop here for a minute and talk about how flattering a prophecy that is for a teenage boy to hear? Achilles is essentially being told he is the chosen one. No one except for him can possibly defeat the evil Trojans. For a boy who has been living as a girl for probably about two years now, this is the call to return to his masculine identity and take up arms. It's the reminder of his honor. The toxic masculinity call knows where you live. It does. (laughs) But Achilles has promised his mom that he will not reveal himself. And honor is at stake. Honor is at stake. That's right, Cucullin. He can't just admit that he's been hanging out here. Dressed as a girl for two plus years, it would not go well for him. Odysseus and Diomedes would laugh at him for a start. So he just keeps quiet and his gender is revealed through trickery. 
So there are different versions of this. The story that we're going to go with is that Odysseus and Diomedes bring King Lycomedes lots of treasures, dresses, fabric, jewels, jewelry, jewels, more jewelry, and more jewels, and offer them to the princesses and ladies-in-waiting. All of the princesses pick up something coded feminine, jewels, necklaces, dresses, jewels, or jewels. Except for Achilles. He picks up a mighty sword. How'd this get in there? (laughs) This is how they recognize Achilles, because instead of picking up something coded feminine, he goes right for the instrument of war. Whatever enchantment Thetis has put on him to protect him seems to dissolve at this point, and Achilles is revealed to be a man. Surprise! The only person in this room who's not shocked and appalled and amazed is Didymea. So it's revealed at this point in time that Achilles got Didymea pregnant. And of course, her dad, King Lycomedes, who sometimes knew that Achilles was Achilles the whole time and sometimes didn't, is really mad that his daughter is, is pregnant, you know, or has already had a baby. We're not sure. The king demands that Achilles acknowledge this child that Didymea either had or is carrying as his own. He makes Achilles promise to marry Didymea. Sometimes this happens before Achilles leaves for Troy. And sometimes it's a promise that Achilles will marry her when he returns from Troy, which Achilles knows he will never do. Didymea is heartbroken. In some versions of the story, she remains on Skyros and raises the son or, you know, multiple sons. Sometimes it's two children. In other versions of the story, she dresses as a boy and goes along with Achilles to war. I would like to read that version. Me too. I'm going to see if I can find that anywhere in the research for the next episode. Potentially leaving her children to be raised by her father or Thetis, I don't know. Any way you look at it, as soon as Achilles' gender is revealed, his life on Skyros, his time as a woman, is over. And he has to pay the toxic masculinity piper. He's been essentially outed by the most clever men of Greece as being a coward, dressing as a woman, and refusing to answer the call of war. It's a bitter pill for Achilles to swallow. The boy of destiny, the chosen one, has been hiding out as a girl this whole time. Wait till everybody hears about it. Or even if they don't, these two guys know the truth and these are the smartest of the Greeks. Oh, they're going to hold that over his head forever. Mm-hmm. And again, when we get into our next episode, this really tracks with a lot of the behavior we see Achilles engaging in as he goes through the war. So anyway... Achilles agrees to go to war. He blames everything that has happened so far on his mother. It's her fault, he argues. Yes, he agreed with her, but she's a goddess and he's immortal. And he was a child, but now he maybe has one to two children. He's a man. Still like 16, though, or 14 to 6. But let's be honest, that that also tracks. (laughs) I mean, they died young back then, especially this one. And he knows he's going to die young if he goes to war. So, before he leaves Skyros, he offers this consolation to his mother. Quote, Achilles, departing the island of Skyros, does sacrifice to the gods and the waters and the south winds, and venerates with a bull the cerulean king, Poseidon, below the waves and nearest his grandsire. His mother, Thetis, is appeased with a garlanded heifer, thereupon casting the swollen entrails on the salt foam he addresses her. Mother, I have obeyed thee, though thy commands were hard to bear. Too obedient have I been. Now they demand me, and I go to the Trojan War and the Greek fleets. So speaking, he leapt into the bark and was swept far from the neighborhood of land by the whistling south wind. And just like that, Pyrrha is gone. Achilles is back. He is ready for war. He is ready to reclaim his honor. He knows he will die at the walls of Troy, and he does not care. And he's a guy with a lot to prove about his masculinity, and some baggage surrounding his gender and his relationship with his mom, Thetis. But before he goes to war, he must meet up with the Greek fleet on an island called Alice. And that's where the story will pick up next week, when we cover the rest of the women who Achilles encountered while at war and what happened when they crossed his orbit. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for the next installment in this story. And in the meantime, find us on social at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. We don't have any patrons to thank this week, but we do have a Patreon. And those of you who are able to support us, you're what keeps our podcast going. Please, please support us at 
patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. That is the money that goes to our research books, the sound production. It goes to everything we need to keep the lights on here. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.